The Message of Origins I welcome you to hear and seriously consider this message of origins. I would like to begin by asking three basic questions which reverberate through our society today. Number one, how did the universe begin? Number two, how old is the earth? And number three, does evolution give us satisfactory answers? The mind of man will always grapple with the discovery of the unknown. That is the way we are made. However, when we begin to contemplate the origin of the universe, we find ourselves already far beyond our capacity to comprehend. We cannot conceive endlessness. In fact, our human logic rebels against the very thought of limitless space. We have ideas about the universe that may prove to be just as absurd as the ancients who were convinced that there were only 1,000 stars in the entire universe. Then Galileo perfected the telescope and opened a door which will remain open until the end of time. Today, it is understood that there are hundreds of billions of stars in our Milky Way, and there are billions of similar galaxies. As much as we hate to admit it, we are already far beyond our capacity to comprehend. We have no recourse but to concede. I don't know. I cannot understand. I give up. Well, back to our first question. How did the universe begin? Many today are supporting the Big Bang Theory, which is being advanced by our current scientific community. But I'd like to ask you, what banged? And from where did the gases come which supposedly generated this massive explosion and spawned the universe? We know that gases do not just form on their own accord out of nothing. So what did generate these supposed massive gas clouds? Another related question, when an explosion occurs, it is always a destructive force spreading mayhem and chaos in all directions. Now here is the question. Is it reasonable to think that this supposed humongous explosion created stars, constellations, galaxies, supergalaxies, and solar systems which are innumerable in their numbers, spectacular in their beauty, immeasurable in their energy, and operate with clock-like precision. This absolutely can never be the product of some gigantic, mindless, destructive explosion. Is there concrete evidence for the Big Bang? To the contrary, it appears that many today are reaching into the murky regions of supposition and grasping for anything that will fill the void in their understanding. Since when does an explosion produce matter? Does there exist scientific proof that matter can be thus created? No. Then there must be a better explanation than the Big Bang. Could this universe possibly be the product of the creative powers of an almighty God? The very first verse of the Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Profound, isn't it? But the scoffers will say, you can't use that because that's recorded in the book of Genesis and we know that Genesis is a mythological and allegorical book. In spite of the fact that there's no indication whatsoever to substantiate the scoffers' claim, let's just move on to Exodus chapter 20 and read verse 11 where we find a crystal clear definition taken directly from the Ten Commandments and here it is. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Well, says the scoffer, this has been translated and copied so many times that it cannot be reliable. 
However, I find it interesting that ancient Hebrew texts say exactly the same thing. That's right. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. This means that everything existing in heaven and in earth and in the sea was brought into being by Almighty God. And there you have it in black and white. What are you going to do with this declaration? Will you reject it and replace it with some unsupportable hypothesis that all matter in the universe was brought into being by a great destructive force? Or are you prepared to believe that our living, almighty God created the universe even as His Word clearly declares? In the New Testament, we read from the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. That's right. The universe with its incomprehensible complexities was conceived in the mind of God and spoken into being by the power of His Word. Thus, human logic alone does not possess the ability to understand, but through faith we can comprehend that the worlds were brought into being by God Himself. Let's look at this another way. Wherever you see a design, there must needs be a designer. Suppose I would declare unto you that I had been preparing a canvas upon which to paint a portrait. I just finished giving it a base coat of paint and laid it on my picnic table to dry. An LP tank in the next block exploded with tremendous force, knocking out windows in several houses and sending a thick cloud of debris and dust billowing in all directions. An hour later, I remembered my precious canvas and ran to retrieve it. Sure enough, dust had fallen onto my fresh paint. But it had landed with such intricate design that there on my canvas was a perfect replica of Mona Lisa. I was ecstatic. I published a book about this mind-boggling event. Would you actually believe my book? No, you wouldn't. Why not? Because you are a being who possesses intelligence. You fully understand that order can never arise from chaos without outside intervention. You also have observed in life that the mere existence of Mona Lisa demands the mind and abilities of an artist and never an explosion. So we witness this same principle at work, howbeit on an infinitely larger scale. We observe designs through the world in which we live. For example, our four seasons, the migration of birds, tides of the ocean, the architecture of a honeycomb, the spiral arrangement of rose petals, the mechanism of an atom. What amazing patterns! What intricate designs! Our eyes with telescopes pierce the heavens, revealing the order of orbits, the beauty of pulsars, the display of energy, unfathomable mass, and distance, all graced with intricate patterns and marvelous designs. In viewing this cosmic portrait, the psalmist was absolutely convinced of the artist. Are you? Listen to what he wrote through his observations, Psalms 19, 1-3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You see, the message of the design pointing to the designer speaks to all people groups throughout the entire world and has been doing so since the beginning of time. 
Now let's consider our second question, the age of the Earth, and how old is it actually? Is the Earth billions of years old as we're being taught by evolutionary science? Or is it 6,000 years old as the biblical record indicates? They cannot both be right. What should you believe? A standard measurement used today in calculating the Earth's age is radiocarbon dating. How does it work and upon what foundation does it rest? Scientists have discovered that cosmic rays colliding with nitrogen atoms in the Earth's upper atmosphere produce a special kind of carbon. This is called carbon-14, which is absorbed into all living creatures through the ingestion of food and through the air that we breathe. Dr. Willard Libby discovered the rate of carbon-14's change and deterioration in 1940 and used this timetable as a means of calculating the age of fossilized remains of once-living tissue. However, Dr. Libby assumed that the starting point or the level of carbon-14 production and absorption has been the same since the beginning of time. Nearly all scientists who share his evolutionary ideas have followed precisely in his footsteps. But I would like for you to consider several variables in this equation. Dare we ask so simple a question as to whether the Earth's atmosphere has always been exactly the same as it is today? What if in ages past there were atmospheric conditions different than they are today? Could that have altered the production and absorption rate of carbon-14? Were scientists then present who measured these conditions? The answer is absolutely no one was then present who could measure those conditions or levels of carbon-14 absorption. Also, do we consider that more recent sun flares, pulsar activities, and exploding stars could have greatly increased the emission of cosmic rays, creating multiple times more carbon-14 today than in ages past? If the beginning point of carbon-14 cannot in fact be established, then why have scientists placed so much weight upon radiocarbon dating when its supposed rock-solid foundation is based upon a shaky assumption at best? Surely they wouldn't be influenced by an evolutionary worldview, or would they? And now for the final question. Does evolution give us satisfactory answers for the origin of the universe, the age of the earth, or for life itself? A similar variable exists in the current method of dating sedimentary rocks. Scientific research viewed through the evolutionary mindset is that sedimentary rock was laid down through a succession of local floods involving eons of time and arrives at a totally different conclusion than when seen through the God-inspired record of the Bible. The Bible account records that Almighty God brought a global flood upon the earth because of man's wickedness. This, no doubt, accounts for sedimentary rock formation being found the world over. Have you, as a thinking person, ever stopped to consider the underlying premise of evolutionary thought? Have you ever asked yourself this question, does order ever arise out of disorder all by itself? Or what about life arising from inanimate material? Has it ever happened? Is there any evidence whatsoever for these claims? None! In fact, proponents of evolution cannot even produce life from inorganic materials in the best of laboratory conditions, and that, after years of research and experiments, believe me, they have tried. Well then, what about the fossil records that we hear so much about? 
Has a fossil record ever disclosed one proven intermediate life form? If we are thinking of birds that have claws on their wings, we do not have to look as far as the fossil record. There exist several species of living birds which have this characteristic today. What about the link between ape and man? The fossil record has yielded the Nebraska man, which was fabricated from several bone fragments and one tooth, later proven to be the tooth of an extinct wild pig. Or maybe we should go back and examine the Piltdown Man, which dominated our science books and museums for years. Perhaps we too could be sharp enough to disclose that it had been fabricated from a 12th century human skull and the lower mandible of an orangutan. File marks were eventually discovered by a scientist as he examined the filed down canine teeth and jaw hinge, proving it to be a clever hoax. The public had so completely swallowed the Piltdown Man's authenticity that it took nearly a generation to demote the Piltdown Man from his elevated position in science. Then Lucy arose from her fossil bed and made her mark in the scientific world. However, it is evident that she is pure ape. She has the locking wrist joints of the ape designed to bear the weight of the upper torso while scrambling around upon all fours. Sorry but Lucy is not your long-lost cousin. But now, what about the Neanderthal man? They have been more recently exhumed from where they slept among the fossils. Their range covered most of present-day Europe and Western Asia. Their tools and lifestyle also were uncovered and have proven them to be fully human, and scientists have now established the Neanderthal DNA codes among living persons in North Africa today. So, what answer does evolution give us about the origin of the universe? What answers concerning the age of the earth, or the origin of humans, or life itself? It is true that evolution has been very useful in raising untold questions, but quite frankly, no satisfactory answers. Why then are evolutionists so adamant about the promotion of their theories? And here is what I see. If men acknowledge that God actually did create the heaven and the earth as the Word of God clearly declares, then the earth belongs to its Maker. Amazingly, that is exactly what the Word of God says in Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's right. The Lord owns that which He has created. If men acknowledge that Almighty God created human life, then it becomes imperative to admit that men belong to their maker. If we belong to God, then we must also become accountable to him and to the moral laws he has set forth. And where are we going to find his laws? We will find them in his word, the Bible. The Bible also clearly states that man, whom God created and placed into a perfectly created world, turned away from him and chose their own way. In so doing, all generations from Adam until this present day have inherited the nature to continue choosing their own way instead of God's way. This choice brings with it moral corruption, murder, hate, and human conflict, which is evident in every nation on the face of the earth. God did not create this world in the chaotic condition as we know it today. It has become this because men still want to take their own way instead of God's way. Yet, evolutionists insist there was no creation of the universe, there was no creation of life, there was no fall of man, and there was no global flood. Why must this anti-God concept dominate our scientific community?
because, as one prominent evolutionist declared in a speech to his colleagues, we cannot allow God to have a foot in the door, for if we do, he declared, there will be no stopping. I commend this man for his honesty and clear-sightedness. He is absolutely right. If you allow God to create anything at all, evolution is done for. I'd like to point out Psalm 24, verse 1 again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But you see, the message of this verse doesn't stop at this point. What I have quoted is only half of its message. Allow me to give you the verse in its entirety. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. The people, the humans are His. That's right. The earth is the Lord's by creation, and we human beings are His for the very same reason. He created us. Instead of God allowing man to continue on in his moral corruption, lying, hating, and killing one another, God longed to have man, the crown of his creation, brought back into a holy relationship with him. Thus he sent Jesus Christ into this world to be born of a virgin as is prophesied in the book of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 and fulfilled it in Matthew chapter 1 verse 25. Jesus Christ was God who came in the form of man to die for our sins that we might be forgiven and to establish a living relationship between us and Almighty God. This is an exhilarating thought that God wants a real relationship with you, His created man. He has made all the provisions necessary for you to experience forgiveness and cleansing from your sinfulness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now, my dear listener, when you come to this point that through faith you reach out to receive God's forgiveness for your sins, He has promised to give you the Holy Spirit to indwell you. The Holy Spirit will open your understanding of the Scriptures, give you the ability to be able to discern right from wrong, and infuse you with the necessary power to resist and overcome temptation. Along with this transaction comes God-given joy, peace, and love that can only be yours through the forgiveness and cleansing of your sins. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If there is a hunger in your soul to know God, if you are tired of failure to be morally pure, if you really desire a relationship with Almighty God, then you want Jesus. How can you know Him? How can you receive Him? He has given you an instruction manual, the Bible. Open your Bible to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and ask yourself, who is Jesus Christ? Continue asking that burning question as you read through the first chapter and allow Matthew, the disciple of the Lord, who was an eyewitness of the things he wrote about, to declare unto you who Jesus Christ really is. Ask that question as you read through the second chapter as well. Continue right on asking who is Jesus Christ as you read through the 28 chapters of Matthew. This will expand your faith as well as increase your understanding. What have you got to lose? I encourage you to do the same through the book of John, who was the closest disciple of the Lord. When your faith has grown to the point that you feel the Holy Spirit 
calling you to repent of your sins, then pray, asking God to forgive and cleanse you from your old life of sin and fill you with the transforming power of His Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in John 14 that Jesus Christ is gone to heaven where He is preparing a place for you. And not only so, but He's coming to receive you unto Himself that you may be with Him forever. Will you believe? Will you seek Him through His Word? Will you repent and be transformed by His Holy Spirit? I pray that you will. We hope this message encouraged you to live your life for God and seek the truth. A hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of house we lived in, how much fun we had, nor what our clothes looked like. Those things won't matter once we pass from this life. What will matter is our response to truth. It will matter what we did with Jesus and whether we allowed Him to be Lord of our life. It will matter whether we lived for ourselves or whether we lived for God and the good of others. Deciding to follow Jesus is a very important decision. Jesus tells us in the Bible that we must consider what it will cost to pledge allegiance to His kingdom. Living for Jesus is not an easy road. When we commit ourselves to Christ, we can no longer do the same things we've done before. We can no longer pursue the American dream. Like the patriarch Abraham, we too must look for an eternal city that has solid foundations, a city whose builder and maker is God. The Bible promises that when we repent and call on the Lord, God hears our prayers and honors the sincere desires of our hearts. So if this message has spoken to your heart, Find a quiet place where you can talk to God while your heart is still tender. Talk to Him just like you would talk to a person. Repent of your sins and cry out for mercy. Invite Jesus to become the Lord of your life and ask Him for His Spirit. Commit yourself to a group of believers who are attempting to actually follow the teachings of Jesus and ask them to baptize you upon your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. When God's Spirit takes up residence in your heart, you are born again with a new spirit. As you love the Lord and walk in obedience to His teachings, you can be assured that you are on the path to eternal life. However, if you are still considering the cost of being Jesus' follower, consider also that serving God really is the only sensible choice, even if that choice is hard. If we faithfully serve the God of heaven— Someday after this life, we will hear Jesus say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I anticipate hearing these words of Jesus someday. It gives me inspiration to get up in the morning. It makes the hardships of this life worth living for and worth dying for. So as you count the cost of committing your life to the Lord, I hope you will make the right choice, the only reasonable choice. So
Indeed, has mercy and pardon. 